teaches now. I say, oh, what if there was no niggas? Only master teaches now. I say, oh, even if your baby ain't got no money to support you, baby. I say, oh, even when the preacher tells you some lies and cheating on your mama. Stay woke. Even though you go through struggle and strive to keep a healthy life, I stay woke. Everybody knows a black or white. There's creatures in every shape and size. I stay woke. Everybody, I stay woke. Everybody, I stay woke. Everybody, I stay woke. Everybody, everybody, everybody. What's going on? What's happening? This is your host, William Moore. This is Chill Time is Will Time. And I have a guest here who I'm just like, I'm just jumping right into it. I'm not asking you talking about the weather. I'm not talking about the rest <laughs> of the day. None of that. I'm jumping right into it because my interview with this guest has been long overdue. Ever since I first ran into her, this got to be what, two, three months ago now? Yeah. Well, two. I think we first met maybe at the um, Duluth Food Access Summit. Yeah, Food Access mm-hmm. Summit. And then, but I brought up the whole concept or, or, or uh, you know, subject matter of you jumping on the podcast maybe mm-hmm. about three months ago mm-hmm. at the um, the Food Nutrition Commission. Mm-hmm. And after she finishes talking, y'all going to totally realize why. <laughs> Thank she, you. She, she got it going on. So, I mean, without further ado, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Okay. Hey, my name is Zoe Holloman, and um, I do community planning and food justice work. I've been in this field for about 15 years, and um, I I hail from upstate New York, kind of in between Buffalo, um, but also my family's in New York City, so I'm kind of in both places. Um, But I moved to the Twin Cities in 2012, and I've been doing food justice work here for since then. So I'm I'm really happy to be here. We're I think we're going to so, talk about food justice and then also maybe um, some athleticism. I mean. Ain't no maybe. Okay. Ain't no maybe. As <laughs> right. long as time permits. As <laughs> long as time permits. All right. We're going to get into all okay, of that. Okay. Cool. Um, so I guess I just kind of once again just thank you for coming, joining on, jumping in with us. Like I said before, I'm geeked and amped about this. Um, so I guess first question. Um, you said you pretty much you you started in you know working with food and social and as far as, as working with food and how it goes with the social justice framework mm-hmm. since 2012 mm-hmm. uh, since you came here uh, came to Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, what 
what really got you, what really made you want to work in that? And, like, mm-hmm. how did you get connected with, like, MFAN and the Food Nutrition Commission where I first met you at? Okay. Well, I have been working in food justice, actually, since uh, probably 2004, maybe three even. Um, in upstate New York, I started to work at an organization called the Massachusetts Avenue Project. And before that, I was doing um, economic organizing and kind of community-based planning with um, com- different communities. And in Buffalo, where I'm from, we have a, a really strong network of block clubs. And so it's just people on their blocks who organize together around a whole bunch of issues. That's dope. It is. I haven't it, really seen that anywhere else, actually. Well, there's they're in like a lot of kind of older Rust Belt cities and, and okay. other cities, I think. Um, Nothing like that here in the Twin Cities, though. Um, that I've seen. I think there are they have they definitely have like national night out, but I just don't know that they're as strong right. as they are there. Um, they're about six hundred or seven hundred block clubs there, so they're not only like a a social thing and a kind of a civic thing, but they're also a very strong political force. So um, I mean, you can imagine like in every neighborhood there is. A group of black clubs and people are working on issues for, from like economic development to um, you know youth development to um, I mean all, all kinds of issues so I was doing that that's kind of how I um, became an organizer and my academic background is in urban planning and economic development um, and so using my knowledge of, of urban planning but working with communities to figure out how to get what they wanted and also just like maneuvering municipal systems and things like that so I was doing that work um, and then in yeah like 2003 or 4 I came across this organization that was doing an amazing um, youth program called Growing Green and they not only had this huge one acre urban farm like in the middle of the hood teaching young people how to grow food how to connect with nature how to um, uh, remember and just realize their ancestral roots to to agriculture, to the spirituality of, of nature and being connected and the power of that, um, but also to like health and nutrition, the science of farming. Um, they also were doing policy work and just incredible stuff. So I came to that then and it just kind of opened my mind up to the organizing around food and to food as as this incredible um, this incredible issue that intersects with all these other issues the environment mm-hmm. you know culture mm-hmm. yep. nutrition uh, you know the economy just like every anything labor like everything is intersects with food right um, you know and so I got involved with it then I came when I came to the Twin Cities in 2012, um, I, you know, I was looking to get involved in food justice work, and I worked with a couple of organizations, um, but I didn't get involved with the Metro Food Access Network until maybe 2016, okay. I think. Um, and uh, Jamie Bain uh, called me, and we sat down, and she said, you know, hey, we have this network of you know 100 or so organizations that are wanting to work on food policy um but we need to we need to bring in um someone who can do some 
um, racial and social justice education. We would like very much to work with social justice organizations and grassroots organizations, but um, they don't seem to be coming. And we don't know why or what the deal is. And um, so I, I started doing some one-on-ones with people and organizations, and I found that there were, in fact, some reasons why the grassroots organizations didn't really want to go to those gatherings or those meetings. Because they weren't always inclusive. Right. And <laughs> so there is, you know, I mean, it's it's similar with almost every institution, almost every board commission, you know. Right, right. They've previously been dominated by white people. And then, you know, they, they think that diversity is the answer. If we can just bring brown people in here, then it will magically turn into this amazing, like, symbiotic relationship. And we're just going to do, no, like, really, yeah. Everything, There's but, no like relationship building, and then a lot of times when they bring minorities in, right? They want to bring minorities in. They want you to bring your physical selves in, but nothing about you culturally because it doesn't quote unquote fit what they're trying to do right. or or any of your practices. It, it was, so it's like yeah. it's a catch twenty two. It's like yeah, we want to be included, but like not at the not at the expense of sacrificing who we are for it. Right, and I think that was you know so that was part of. Um, kind of the, the the issues that came out and I was like look you know uh, diversity is not is not it should not be the goal equity should be the goal right but you basically you know there were also a lot of people who are part who were part of the network who really didn't understand the difference you know oh, they yeah. didn't they didn't understand what equity actually meant so pretty quickly we decided um, I brought together a small group of organizers we created the equity action team and we said we need a way to have a conversation um, so that we can share some of the same perspectives and history so that then we can talk about you know how do you do policy with an equity lens right because everybody's right, right, talking right. about using that word but but they don't actually know what it means it's a buzzword right so we um, we created this food you know this food system timeline which is essentially a historical I think that that was dope was, there was, yeah. yeah there was one specific thing on there. I'll let you finish mm-hmm. that I will talk about it later that stuck out to me big and I was like that was a prophecy mm-hmm. um but go, go ahead. We'll talk about that a little bit later once you get into it more. Well, just quickly. Um, so we, we created this timeline, <clears> which is a physical timeline, and um, it's about 70 feet long. And it, it documents the economic policies of very intentional policies and decisions that were made to, um, to keep uh, people in the population, mostly people of color and new immigrants as well, subjugated and to be used for cheap labor to build these systems, um, which created a huge amount of wealth, but exclude them from that wealth. And so it, I think the timeline shows people um, that um, how we got to the food system that we have was not an accident. Mm-hmm. Um, we can stop blaming, people can stop blaming communities of color for, you know, the health problems and the, you know, um, the not accessing fresh, healthy food and start looking at the systems. Yeah, no, okay. that all these social not, determinants of health right. have nothing to do with our decision making. Right. But it's really about the, the, the system that was placed around us. Like right. it will. It's, it's what we had to take advantage of right. at the moment. I mean, it's certainly, you know, we each have our own individual yeah, there's some decisions decision that we can it, make. But, but I think, like, 
it limits hundreds their choices, and though. hundreds and yep. hundreds of years of oppression, of economic, social, cultural oppression, like turns all into these things. Conditioning. Right, it turns into conditioning. Is exactly the case. So that's what we show with the timeline. Um, we also, I mean, there's a lot of things that are highlighted, but specifically, we focus on. Um, disconnecting people from people of color from access to land um, which is one of the central ways that families have built wealth forever um, so disconnecting them from land disconnecting them from food disconnecting them from culture um, disconnecting them from uh, wealth building opportunities and um, disconnecting them from political power those are the five main areas um, that we pull out as a sort of framework mm -hmm. and we talk to people about how we can use those areas to think about policy development to actually restore um, some of the things that have been taken I mean it's impossible to restore everything the hurt right. and trauma that have been caused but when people are like okay well we want to create equitable policy or policies for equity look at those five areas because those are the things that have really been taken yeah, for um, sure. So if you're walking around saying, look, well, we don't know what to do, we don't know what to invest in, like, think about those. Those are, like, those are great. That's what we say anyways. Yeah. And I'll give you a prime example, mm -hmm. too, of uh, something that I heard a lady say while at work, at, mm -hmm. uh, at a meeting at work, that shows that she was totally out of touch with how the system uh, manipulated and conditioned people mm -hmm. to... to to make bad choices, you know what I'm saying, mm -hmm. and how lack of knowledge means that you're not, you're not even consciously making a bad choice. You're making the best choice you can out of what's available. Right. So we were talking about uh, food shelves and how uh, food shelves need to be, you know, basically there need to be a lot of improvement in different food shelves, mm -hmm. and that a lot of uh, there need to be less junk and more like produce, you mm -hmm. know, fresh fruit, mm -hmm. veggies, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And we had a lady say. Um, and I won't say what meeting it was or uh, what agency or anything like that, but she basically said, well, we have fresh fruit and produce and stuff at, at, um, at our uh, food shelf, mm -hmm. but those people, she's like, yeah, she'll use those people. Oh, those people. Yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. And she said, um, <laughs> she said, what do you think they choose? They, they go in towards the junk anyway. And I had to interject, and I say, "Ma'am, it like it shows that you're kind of out of touch." I say, "Cause you have to think about it this way. Mm -hmm. Let's say that you, yep, you you've been offering fresh fruit and produce, but they come in, you know, a mom, maybe a single mom with two, three kids comes mm -hmm. in, and she's on a you know fixed income, fixed budget. Not only that, she's got a fixed amount of time because mm -hmm. she's got these kids, and she mm -hmm. may very well work one day, not even one. She's working two jobs. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's I mean, I know well-to-do people." Or people who you know can consider themselves lower middle class or middle class who work two jobs, mm -hmm. and I said, I said there's an educational component to this and mm -hmm. a conditioning to this. I mm -hmm. said not only has she maybe been brought up mm -hmm. eating junk food, I said if she's never been exposed to fresh a lot of different types of fresh fruit or produce. Mm -hmm. Chances are she doesn't know how to prepare them either. Mm -hmm. So if she's got limited resources, limited time, or limited funds, mm -hmm. why would she pick out uh, fruits or, or vegetables 
to make a dish mm-hmm. that a she doesn't she doesn't necessarily know what they are, mm-hmm. nor does she know how to prepare them. Mm-hmm. She's gonna put her money and resources to something that she already knows. It's already pre prepared, mm-hmm. or she knows she knows how to make. I said mm-hmm. so. At any point in time in your food shelf, where you guys at providing any type of educational materials, mm-hmm. were you showing her how to, or you had any type of reading material that shows her how to prep this, you know, these uh, fruits and veggies mm-hmm. uh, in a in a very you know quick and efficient way. Mm-hmm. If you're not doing that, then you can't place all the blame on them like mm-hmm. it's again it comes to something that I always say like you know a lot of our organizations always talk about providing opportunity mm-hmm. uh, for disadvantaged folks um, but they leave out that they never teach people how to take advantage of said opportunities mm-hmm. so if we're providing these opportunities but we're not teaching people how to take advantage of it of these opportunities mm-hmm. then did we really in fact provide them with an opportunity mm-hmm. I say we did it yeah I, I mean I agree I think one of the things that I, I think is a problem is that we don't look at the complexities and the ways that different issues are compounded so sure. like you were talking about like a, a simple solution that a lot of people are like oh just provide the food however there's also there's time that mm-hmm. is an issue I cannot like I mean I know just from personally growing up in a low-income family and just remember the amount of time that my mom spent in lines in lines for public services and you know um, food stamps and, and things like that, like, yeah, and so that, too. so that even I mean, not to mention if you have an ill parent, if you don't have a vehicle and you have to take public transportation, there's just there are a lot of other factors, and I think we need to get in the habit of understanding how those factors, those various factors, impact people. Um, and also, it's not just low-income people that are um, not eating healthy, right? Right. It, it, it exactly. is. It is. It is all incomes. And I personally think America is the most obese nation in the world. Right. And I personally think part of that is, you know, is stress. Is well, I mean, some of it is stress, but also just like the the convenience eating, mm-hmm. the the sheer mass. Of junk food and highly processed, sugary, fatty, highly salted foods are now like seventy percent of what's in our grocery stores and stores and neighborhoods. And, and it, right it, whereas front, it used to be in. exactly whereas it used to be maybe like not even ten percent, right? Right, right. Uh, but now, I mean, the the corporations that create our food are just they have found so many ways to extract as much as they can. Um, and and really give us like very poor quality food, um, and so that's what is happening a lot of times. Um, there's a lot of really good books and and movies about that as well that kind of uncover pieces of it. I really like um, Fed Up. It talks about sugar and the sugar industry. I really enjoyed that movie. Mm-hmm. A Place at the Table is also very good. It's from the producers of like The Inconvenient Truth, but it really talks about how how little people are um, educated about um, about nutrition and the chemistry of food and what happens once it goes in your body. Because a lot of times when you talk to doctors, they'll just tell you a calorie is a calorie, and you know you gotta you gotta lower the amount of calories that you intake and then increase the amount of um, exercise. It's you a know. generic formula. But though. it's not actually right. Everybody's body is completely different. 120 calories of almonds is very different than 120 calories of cereal. Right. Right? It's completely different. It does different things with your body. Some of it offers very little nutrients, like 
uh, you know, 120 calories of soda offers you like almost no nutrients, nothing, right? right? So you you might think that that's okay. Oh, well, you know, I can just eat a bowl of cereal. I have my calories and then I'll just try to work out. But then you find you have no energy. You're sagging, you know, because your body's not actually getting what it needs, right? right. And, and that is just... Um, you know, a microcosm of like kind of what we see in, in low-income communities across the country where the stores that are there um, are carrying just much more convenience foods and and much fewer foods that are actually high in nutrients or Right, and vitamins. they're very reluctant to switch, up, switch it up because it makes it, it brings in so much revenue for them right you know especially and i said when let me let me rephrase that they're reluctant to switch it up unless you provide them with a better alternative that can still generate the same type of revenue right if you just go into these corner stores and say we need you to change this 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 and this and this but you don't offer them a viable alternative they're gonna look at you sideways well, because I they're mean, still trying to make their bottom line as well right and then part i mean part of it is like can you blame them i've worked with corner store owners to try to do exactly that to like say hey you know there's this there's this you know gardening thing down the street they have a bunch of produce they're trying to sell it like would it be possible for us to make you know uh to try to sell it out of your store and they're looking at you like what my business model is not about that right and right. you have to respect that as well because like a lot of co um convenience store owners their margins are actually very small you know they may have gotten loans from their other family members and other right, people right. to like just even buy that store and you know you walk in and you're like oh you know it's not the newest. It doesn't look nice in here because they don't have money for remodeling. <laughs> right. You know, they're, they're, they they figure out what sells the fastest, and then they want to carry only those products. And then the other ones that sit on the shelf and never sell, they're not trying to sell those. Trying, yeah, not, yeah. And so, so you know, some of the work that I've seen, like there's there has been work um, around the country for um, helping corner stores succeed at that those kinds of sales. Um, but it's a, it's it's either like a complete remodel, and and you have to convince the the consumers that you are about fresh, healthy food, and that your store is very clean and inviting, and so that's why people would come to your store as opposed to like oh you know we can get white teas and we can get like <laughs> other things and oh look there's some apples over here <laughs> you know what I mean like there sure. it's 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 one of those things that it, it takes a lot more than just kind of saying like here put this on your shelf and and see if it goes um because again like a lot of people they're not used to buying that stuff there like we talked to a lot of neighbors and they were like oh heck no like i'm not buying produce at the corner store unless it's wrapped in plastic like i don't trust yeah, that don't trust you know right. and so you know it's just it's not I think it's one of those things that also requires it's a huge culture change. It requires right. It and that can't requires right. It requires a lot more. Um, the other thing that I'll just say, and then we can go on to something else. But um, a lot of like young mothers like are having issues with um, their kids. Like they're not sure that they'll eat these things, right? If they right. cook them, right? Yep. And so when you have a restricted budget, like you know, you're money. not trying to waste a dime of that money, right? right. So you're like, let me see let me should i a buy these vegetables and fruits which i'm not exactly sure that my kid is going to eat and then they're also perishable 
or should I get these other products which are um, you know unperishable they last for a lot longer it see it's a smarter choice you know to go with those other ones that you can actually have all of the value of that right at least financially um, for that it's just it's it's just it's it's not only unfortunate it's it's really sad because you know you're not getting with a lot of those products you're just not getting any nutrition so you're full but you know the actual vitamins and the nutrients are not there so you know we have like stunted growth we have all these we have learning disabilities we have all these people effects. basically walking around looking like they're healthy but they're actually just Malnourished. Or maybe not even looking like they're healthy. I mean, True. you know, they might be full, but they they actually just ate a bunch of salt, sugar, and fat, and 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 just and didn't get a lot of nutrients. And you know, so at any rate, I mean, I think there's a lot of other issues um, with food, you know, labor, and um, you know, the disinvestment of local economies, like all kinds of stuff that I'm excited to talk about. But it's 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 very important to kind of understand the complexity of issues when we look at food access um, and healthy food access. Yeah, it's very nuanced. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we go out in our communities and, like, you know, when you're doing, you know, activism and mm-hmm. we all know, like we you just talked about, it's nuanced. There's a lot of different issues that plague our communities, right? Mm-hmm. Where would you rank food security, though? Well, I mean, I, I mean, maybe I'm biased because I work in the food justice movement, but I think it's like the top. I think it's like it's it's literally. I mean, how can we um, expect the younger generations to to meet the demands and the standards of things that we need them to fulfill? You know, if we can't provide food for them where their bodies and muscles and bones like can actually grow, right? Right. Or if because of the food they're eating, they have a hard time focusing in school, in class, right? Right. Uh, not to mention all the other things they have to deal with, right? Um, but I just think, I think, so I think access to food is also, I th- also think, I mean, from an economic standpoint, access to food as an economic asset for communities of color to be able to utilize, to build wealth for themselves is is something is another issue that is is just is so important. I mean, the amount of money that is made on food and food products is huge. Is huge, and the wealth, like where that wealth goes, is to a very small part of the population around the world. And it is it is something that we have to change. For sure. Yeah. So, what do you think is actually the biggest obstacle? to food security issues being solved in an equitable fashion. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Gonna come with you no easy question. Well, right. (laughs) I mean, I really think, I think the more that um, people who care about this issue, the more that they can do to get to know the people that they supposedly want to help, Mm-hmm. The more that they can do to change their perspective of like away from this like white savior complex of like I'm feeding these starving children like these <laughs> little babies, to exactly to these right. people have been oppressed for generations and generations, and now we're gonna give them an apple, like to 
to to you know to seeing people differently. I mean, that sounds it's like actually seeing us as actual people, right? For, for starters, as people, because the argument can be made as, right. that a lot of them actually don't see us. As the, they don't see us as people. Mm-hmm. We're character. We're, we're, we're characterized as animals. Statistics and animals. Oh my god! Prime Ex- example. Mm-hmm. When you know an innocent man, a black man, woman, or child is killed, there's somewhat of an uproar, but it, it disappears quickly. Mm-hmm. All right, mm-hmm. and, and and it doesn't leave past uh, maybe some marching in some streets, some signs and stuff like that. Let a famous let let a rich dentist or doctor go shoot an animal or them kill an animal in a zoo. Right. Not only are they marching and protesting and signs, people are boycotting everything. Isn't that the They're truth? showing up to the doctor's office. People are crying on They're, on leaving yeah. videos of them crying. crying? And oh yeah. I'm like, I wish you would get mad when a black person gets murdered. <laughs> like, honestly. I, 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 and let me say this: it's not to say that um, there aren't white people or people of European descent who who do care true, because I true. know there are I know there are I know they're out there and I know a lot of them are engaging we just need um, you to be more active and vocal than you already are some <laughs> of you I'm just being right, real right. And c- because I, I you know I can say for sure too just like you say I can you know I can back that up and reiterate yep I, I know some personally mm-hmm. who care mm-hmm. and 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 give a crap mm-hmm. Some who seem to care a little bit more than some, you know, people of color that I know. Mm-hmm. But for the rest of you, it's not enough for it. For it, it's it, we're to, we're we're mm-hmm. at a, a critical time where it's not enough for you to say you disapprove of what's happening to us, or it's a shame, or mm-hmm. it's terrible. Like you have to take action as mm-hmm. well because our voices are being drowned out. Now we're just coming across as the angry malcontents. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they're tired of hearing our voices. Mm-hmm. They need to start hearing your voice now. Mm-hmm. They, they they hear you. They've started to be, be able to drown us out. Mm-hmm. And so we need you to not just, to stop just being displeased. We need you to take action. Start resisting. I mean, yep. Interrupt. Start when personalizing you see something it. happening. Start, start envisioning right? being your son or your daughter or your grandparents right. or your aunt or uncles right. that are suffering from the things that we are. Right. And then once you do that and you, you personalize it, then I think things will start to get better. Right. But until then, we're still going to be pretty much running on that hamster wheel. Right. And I think another thing is really having, yeah, having a race class analysis mm-hmm. and having a way to look at issues is really important. Um, that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about the timeline work. And I really promote, I tell other people, hey, you know, do timeline work. Come to try to figure out ways to understand how we got to where we are and not just like the lip service and the, the marketing and things that has been fed to us, but actually by going out and looking, you know, um, I got the timeline idea from um, a group of young people in the South called um, the Black Project, I want to say, um, uh and there's another organization, the South Project. Um, they work with youth to like they do timeline work as a form of um, popular education and really like a form of just like grounding young people and knowing where all of these inequities come from. So they gave an, an example of they did a timeline of the police in the United States. And it was it was incredible. They talked about how, you know, they learned that essentially police come from mercenaries who were just like paid 
you know, military people, right, right, to protect rich white people with property, property. essentially to argue that's still the case. Right. And so that's like, that's the thing. Meanwhile, we've, you know, grown up with this like marketing and lip service and all this like stuff from the media that's like the police are out to serve and protect. They protect everyone, everyone, you know, but I mean, you know, in fact, that's not where they come from at all. So, like, granted, like, now they get paid through tax dollars and things like that, but they didn't have a history of protecting everyone. You know no, what I mean? And exactly. so, so, so you know. So, essentially, the way they're behaving and what they're doing now really isn't. Is that it, an it's, accident? It's not an accident. It's, not, right. it's in their blueprint. Yeah. It's in their history. It's in, it's, there's precedence for it. And so if we can start looking at more things like that rather than saying, but, you know, but there's supposed to be like these romantic ideas, I think, that a lot of times we have about capitalism and mm-hmm. all these other things. No, go and do some research and you'll see it's not very romantic. And it'll spell it out for you. You'll see patterns clear as day. So, I mean, I, think I the encourage. Does an awesome job of that. Of Thank showing you. Those patterns, because I, Thank you. I remember that being one of my one of the things I said um, at the end when we we're all talking about it. Mm-hmm. I said, I wonder. I'm wondering what was going on during this time. Like what people were, were feeling or saying. Because when you look at a timeline itself, it unfolds right before your eyes. There's mm-hmm. no mystery behind it mm-hmm. it's not concealed mm-hmm. it's blatant mm-hmm. and it's a blatant pattern mm-hmm. that unfolds right before your eyes mm-hmm. you can tell you can predict what's going to happen every step of the way right and i i mean i think also like the building of timelines is actually a really great practice as well because you know so for our timeline we we um we made a call out for you know organizers and other people who cared about food justice to come and meet um three or four times and actually bring in trees so you know we fact checked and things like that but we built this thing and um it it, it it's it's incredible um and now we you know we have it to use to to center people of color's experience um to kind of reaffirm with people so that we can kind of start from the same place i think that's another thing when you you know you and i have both been in you know room conferences and on Mm -hmm. you know um, policy conversations and circles where you know people are saying these things they don't they do not have a a race class analysis they don't have any context they're saying these things then they're like well you know the i have the intent it's right here, and I want to, and you're like, <laughs> you know, you're like, you don't understand. You literally don't have it, any, any knowledge concept. of the history of how, like, it's not an accident that these communities of color are um, are suffering from all of these things. It's not an accident. It is intentional. It has been intentional for a long time, and it still is now. And so, you know, but... You know, that was the whole purpose of this timeline. So when you bring people along, they everybody walks the same 70 or 80 feet along the timeline. There's art, there's visuals, there's other things that are, make it engaging. Um, people kind of walk through a little bit of the same history, right? And then we have these questions and things to engage them, to get them to process the information so that after that, then you can say, oh, okay, that's why we're talking about, you know, um, helping farmers, black farmers get land, right? Right. That's why we're talking about, um, you know, 
economic justice in food. Why are we talking about economic justice in food? Like people ask me that question. I'm like, well, I mean, you know, your financial stance, standing is, is the number one factor in your health, like more than any other thing. So, um, you know, there are reasons. <laughs> there, was a, there was a dope quote on the timeline by, um, what was his name? Um, God, I can't believe I'm drawing a blank on it because it was, it was like prophetic to me, but it was something like along the lines of, if you control wealth or the land or whatever, mm-hmm. you can control nations. Mm-hmm. But if you control the food, you control the people. Right. Do you remember who that was? I, I'm not sure if it was Kissinger. It was. It, it was Kissinger. Kissinger. There it are a Kissinger. lot. There are a lot of quotes in there, and it was Kissinger. Yeah, it's 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 it is. It's true. I mean, if you you think about it, and yeah. I mean the the other things that you know the timeline shows that the the oil barons and the people who made their money through oil, like mm-hmm. the industrialists and stuff, they just moved over to food. And they, they took all the wealth that they had made exploiting people from, you know, in oil and mining, and they just moved into food because they saw, they yeah. were like, wow, you evolution. know, food is huge. And I mean, everyone need absolutely needs it, right? Right. So it was, it was, it's super smart and kind of evil in an evil way. <laughs> I think that's a great segue to the next question, mm-hmm. too, being, so big, big, like, obviously big business and politics, mm-hmm. um, they definitely have their hands in a lot of these uh, food justice issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say they're probably, like, the biggest barriers. How would you encourage people to com- combat the, both of these entities? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, and, and and what have you found are the best strategies to do so? I mean, I think there are a lot of strategies. Um, I think for me, I mean, just becoming educated about our food system and the um, monopolies that have been created and are still being created by mergers and things. Um, when you have the, like... 80% of the world's food being controlled by like six companies or something. Mm-hmm. That is very That's scary. Insane. I mean, I've been That's reading, about as close to a monopoly as you can get. I know. I've been reading <laughs> I, I've been reading uh, like science fiction and, you know, the kind of post-apocalyptic stories and things the for a long time. And, and uh, I mean, you know, there it's it's uncanny how how close we are to a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, I think that, you know, it's more known now about um, companies like Monsanto and other companies that... Well, recently, they just changed sued, their name, right? They have sued farmers. They're trying to get away from their, like, bad name, basically. They're, you know, the, all the bad deeds that they've done. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, sued farmers for saving their own seeds, you know? And, I mean, agriculture is, is thousands of years old, and it is something that our indigenous communities birthed and created and perfected. Mm-hmm. I mean, having a relationship with nature and you you have this trust with the earth to provide for you and you are a steward. I mean, having that being co-opted by corporations whose single purpose is not even long-term um, capital. Like, like immediate disenfranchisement. Very short-term. I mean, they're destroying the actual materials that are helping them create wealth. It's it's destroying very, cultures. It's, 
And just, I mean, yeah, obviously, <laughs> but also just even if they were just only focused on their ability to make money endlessly in the future, they're not even thinking, even about, thinking that, about that, right? They're not it's thinking like, about the sustainability at all. Right, it's like, and if you look at it, the, our practices that we have now are not sustainable. None no, whatsoever. I mean, I, there, I heard some statistic that's like if, uh, you know, if every country were to live uh, the way the U.S. does, we need seven planets. Or something, and I just think like even if you're just a you're a corporate CEO person, right? Right. Even if you're just focused on like I want to make, you know, my company the most money that it can make for the next twenty five years. Well, you need water. You need those natural resources to even for the farms to even grow the food. So um, we're depleting the soil. I know, and the water and the air. I mean, the, the wildlife and all of these things. And I think it's it's um, it it, draw, the it makes fighting me, back though. I mean, to true. me, there's no mistake. You get four hurricanes coming in a row. Earthquakes, talk volcanoes happening all around. Talk about the, it. The seawater turning red. Talk about it. I just don't <laughs> want to, you know, I, I I, I, hope, and I mean, my mother says that I am like, she's like, well, you're an organizer, so that means you're an eternal optimist. Like, <laughs> obviously, you think that all of this work and, you know, getting other people to engage in that work is going to accomplish some things, right? And I'm like, yeah, right. you're, you're right. I, um... I do hope that, you know, we don't have to be wiped off the face of the planet, right? <laughs> like, I hope that we don't. Uh, you know, I I really do, though, um, I do get the feeling that, you know, it's just a tidal wave. It's a tidal wave of, um, of you know, of, of power that these companies have. And um, so... In order for us to be able to um, take that power, and I do believe that power has to be taken. I don't oh, yeah. believe that you it's ever conceded. It. They're not no. going to give it over. No. So, in order for us to take that power, we need to become increasingly creative um, in in finding different ways. And so, I think there's a lot of exciting things happening in food justice. Um, I think, um, I mean. Just a couple. One is um, looking at um, procurement. Um, I'm working with a local coalition um, of a national outfit called Good Food Purchasing, and it specifically looks at um, working with institutions um, around policy to influence the um, the purchasing practices of big institutions that are often running on public dollars. Um, influencing those financial flows to get benefits for our communities um, and to to make food purchasing on a larger scale more socially responsible. Um, I mean, if you can imagine um, the huge amount of food that the University of Minnesota buys every year. I mean, oh my God, it's huge, right? Right. Um, if they had some standards that, you know, you know, required that food budget to be spent more so on local farms, more on sustainable purchases, um, with the vendors, you know, um, treating their labor, treating the food workers properly, 
incorrectly and not having labor violations. Like, we could make huge changes. Um, and, you know, certainly, I mean, individuals, we can all vote with our dollars, right? But here we have these institutions. They're spending millions and millions and millions of dollars. Same institutions that claim every, to care, too. Right. Every year. Every year they're, they're already spending this money. If we can um, engage with them to help influence how that money gets spent, I think we can accomplish a lot. Um, it's definitely going to be a fight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, I think, um, I was talking to my friend and, you know, we were just, you know, we're both organizers and just talking about like, oh, what is it going to take? Like, really? You know? And I was like, well, uh, the more and more I see, I feel like um, all the companies care about is money. So to me, that means we need to figure out how to do economic organizing. Exactly. And they will understand that. Um, And we've seen in history boycotts they have an impact but when the moral right when the moral appeal is just not there like when they, it's not when it comes to business big business there is no moral right appeal. right well that. with with um you know during the civil rights movement i mean with people you know with the bus boycotts mm-hmm. and in you know cesar chavez with organizing like the grapes and and telling people you know don't buy grapes until these farm workers are getting you know paid properly until you know and i think the then the companies feel it they're like dang like we're having a huge drops in profits we need to do something about this right you know um i think there are a lot of ways that we can engage people in those ways and 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 make the companies hear us i can do so have you seen any success so far I mean, definitely. I think, um, well, Good Food Purchasing is um, is a, a national movement, and there have been, um, you know, there are school districts and cities around the country that have made incredible changes. Um, in Los Angeles, the LA Unified School District adopted um, this set of standards, and they have huge, I mean, they've created, like, I think they've saved, like, I don't even know how many millions of gallons of water they have um, improved the health, the like nutrition value of the food. They've changed. Um, they've created help create small businesses because you know they'll kick out. They'll say like, okay, you can't pr- provide this um, bread that's whole wheat and that's you know how we want it. Well, we'll go and help these small businesses that you know were we found locally and give them the contract. Right. Um, so, like, supporting, like, the local economy in that way. Um, we here, our coalition here is really kind of just starting. And so we've been kind of building our partner organizations and our allies. Um, we have a great partner in Minneapolis Public Schools. They just had their assessment in the beginning of the year. I've heard. And they're very committed to um, to working with us to make these changes, and that's, that's really exciting. So um, we, we have... Um, um, some labor folks at the table. We have some environmental justice folks at the table. We have um, we have some farming organizations. We have some farmers at the table, and um, they really can come together to help um, to help this institution figure out how to 
be more socially responsible, um, as well as other ones in the future. I'm, I'm really excited about it. I think it is, it is going to be in, you know, in 25 years, it's going to be just like kind of lead standards. And now everybody talks about lead standards and, right. you know, um, more sustainable building practices and construction. And um, I think that we're going to be talking like that about food in the future because of this kind of work. So I'm excited about it. Well, with that, I want to get into something real quick. Okay. About, and, and this is one of the, the big, don't get me wrong, I love the work that she does. Yeah, it's justice. important to me. But I'm tripping about this next thing we're about to talk about. So I'm actually, you guys, what you don't know is you're listening to an, uh, an Olympian. <laughs> I'm sitting in a room with an Olympian right now. And matter of fact, Nick, look, can you uh, hand me okay, that medal? Yeah, I'll hand you the medal. <laughs> Which I don't really, I'm holding the medal right now. That's right. That Ms. Zoe won in the Olympics in Paris. Mm. Um, you want to go ahead and tell everybody about that? Sure. So I am part of a, a synchronized swimming team called the Subversive Sirens. Synchronized swimming, y'all. That's right. I've only yeah. seen it twice in my life. So to, for me to run into somebody who's like, yeah, I do synchronized swimming. Yeah. I was like, excuse me? What? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we are a team of five women, and we are predominantly brown and queer uh, synchronized swimming team. And um, we are all artists and activists, and we came together in um, last year um, and developed a mission statement um, that we are committed to black liberation. Um, we are committed to um, queer visibility, um, equity in the aquatic arts, because we have a lot of inequities here um, in this state um, between people of color getting access to pools and swimming and actually having a lot of drowning deaths. Um, and then also um, body positivity, um, that you know you don't need to wait to be a size, a specific size, right. to get your joy in athleticism or sports. You know, don't let other people tell you that you're the wrong shape or size to um, to have your joy. You know. Um, so we came together last year, and um, our first competition was the Gay Games in Paris, which is a 40-year-old um, organization that has been, every four years, having an alternative to the Olympics um, for the reason that um, they have not always been inclusive, mm -hmm. um, that a lot of the sports that we have are very gendered. So you have you know women who can't compete in certain sports because they're women and men who can't compete in certain sports because they're men. Right. Um, and it is, I mean, their life's dream to do this, to compete at the international level, but because of these stupid rules, they're not able to and so the gay games was created um, to, to really provide an inclusive space um, for people to you know live their life dreams and um, it, it is a beautiful thing to witness I have to say like I didn't I, I knew it was incredible and you know I'm a queer woman of color and um, you know so it's certainly having that space but I seeing it what it meant to so many people who I mean we swam with um, a team from um, a, you know South France um, they have been competing for 17 years and they are truly I mean they, they are so amazing they should be able to compete at the Olympics but they're not allowed and so just seeing them compete and win like they're 
incredible. And so at any rate, it was an amazing, um, it was the first time we competed. And so we won a gold medal for our age division, and we won a silver medal for um, a duet. The gold medal was for the full team routine that we did. And, yeah, I mean, synchronized swimming is um, – it's a very tough sport. I think most people, when uh, I when I, like I, I have like a hundred questions for you when I first found out. You're like, how like, do you do yeah, that? Yeah, how do you do it? And when did it come a part of your life? Why yeah, did you want to do it? I ask you every question in the book. I know it, it's <clears throat> one of those sports that I think people either don't know anything about it or they, when they think about it, you know, they think of Esther Williams or like in the fifties or whatever. When it looked more like ballet in the water, and I think if you YouTube it now, I mean, it is an Olympic sport. It is, um, it is extremely difficult. I, I would mean, drown I so would, <laughs> I would, it's, I would say it is. You know, think of another sport where you. Um, you know, you are, you are working so hard, your heart rate, you're just, you're breathing so heavy, and then someone asks you to hold your breath. And keep the same level of activity. I mean, you know, running a 400 or something, like, try to do that, holding your breath. It's it's extremely <laughs> difficult. Um, but that's, I mean, wow. synchronized swimming is, it is, um, I would say it's like a combination of almost like acrobatics and, um, Man, it's everything. and dance and, and swimming. And um, so one of the things about it is that... Um, the judges, um, they only judge what's on top of the water, what happens above the water line. Okay. So, I mean, you are are working feverishly under the water so is it to like, keep yourselves high. So is it like the vision of, like, you show, they show you, like, uh, when the duck is, uh, is, is floating across <laughs> water, it yeah. looks so calm and cool and stuff like that. But the underwater, legs are, like, legs are going in yeah, a yeah. feverish pace. Yeah, it's, it, is, it is. And, you know, when we do all these lifts and you know, throw people out of the waters. They can do flips and things like that. Nobody's feet are touching the bottom of the pool. Like you're all, you're swimming. And um, yeah, and then for us, I mean, I think um, we, we put our routines together with our mission in mind. Um, and that is, you know, using the creative art of synchronized swimming to put messages around equity and liberation and um, and queer visibility and all those things out there. Because, you know, again, it's it's a performative art. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you know, like dance or music or something like that, you can use it to tell people things, you know, to tell the audience, to tell the wider world things. And so, you know, we do that. We also do other things. We, you know, we attend protests. We're, we're all, most of us are organizers in our professional lives. But, um, you know, I think that um, it's another way that we can use the art to make it a platform um, for for equity and, and liberation. Um, there's so much. It's 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 just been such an incredible thing for myself. Um, and I know the other members of the team, like most of us are, you know, workaholics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it's a good outlet. It is incredible self-care. It is an incredible um, thing. You know, you, you know, for those of us who are overworked and just like tired a lot, like, it's kind of counterintuitive that getting very active in a sport will give you energy, but it does. It gives you energy. Tell me what the um, training for this looks like. Okay, so um, we, uh, when we're 
not getting ready for competition, we swim a couple times a week. Okay. Um, but as soon as we have a competition and we start getting ready for it, that amps up to four times a week, five times a week. And then once we're within, you know, two months of the competition, it's every day. And um, so, you know, in the pool, we are doing, um, we do at least like 12 to 15 laps and that's a warm up. And you do, um, you know, you do freestyle, backstroke. Um, uh, butterfly, um, breaststroke, and that kind of just gets your muscles like warmed up. It helps with your lung capacity and it helps you build endurance. So you you kind of build that to just get an ease in the water and 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 build that like muscle memory so that you can then do harder things. So then you learn um, your your moves of the routine and you usually learn the actual like individual moves, like you practice them until you can do them successfully. And then the routine is piecing those moves together and then having artistic uh, transitions and right, figuring out how you're gonna tell a story and things like that. So so it's 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 just, it's an incredible thing. I can't, it's hard to explain. Um, You're painting a good picture of it, though. Okay, cool. cool. I, think, I think so. I mean, I it's it has just done so much for me in terms of, you know, I grew up with incredible women, like incredibly strong women. My mom was a single parent, and just... Um, she taught me to be an organizer. She taught me, you know, integrity and what that means and all these other incredible things that I think a little bit unintentionally she kind of taught me that she puts herself last. And so I don't, obviously, I don't think she meant to teach me that, but I learned that, like, that's what we do as women. We we work and work and work and work and, you know, we don't take time for ourselves. Um, and so it was a lesson for me as an adult to figure out how to create boundaries and how to make time for myself for something that's for me that gives me joy, you know, especially also like just being, well, being a black woman (laughs) in this, in this country, um, you know, being an organizer, you just deal with so much, um, negativity, you know, micro macro aggressions, just anger, rage, like, obstacles that it gets to you you know if you don't have outlets or other ways to remind you and to experience the good things right so I think that's another piece of what we do as subversive sirens is experiencing joy that you know we use the Audre Lorde quote that um um self-care is self-preservation and that is a political act um, it's you know it is it's it's so important and so now I feel like I'm a little bit of an evangelist I go all the organizers and like other people I'm like what are you doing for joy um, what are you doing for self-care because um, if we're gonna sustain the movement um, and if we're gonna bring other people into the movement, you know, how are we gonna bring people in to the movement and say, okay, you're gonna work 60, 70 hours a week. It's gonna be really rough. You're not gonna have enough time for your family. Like out, yeah. exactly, like who wants to come into that, right? And right. it's not the kind of movement I want to be in. So um, it is, it is, it's our our 
our call of sorts. I can dig it. Yeah. So I got a couple more questions for you. I let you sure. go because I know you're on a, a, t- a tight schedule. Yeah. So so, can you tell me like, for one, is this something that you intend on really doing like for years to come, and is this something that you would like to see? kind of spread to more like men and women of color like to do? Yeah, so first, yes. <laughs> we decided after we came back from the gay games, um, well, before we went to the gay games, we you were gotta like, go. you this better is, keep doing it. Yeah, like, and beyond the medals, like, it's for us, you know, this is this thing, it gives us life, it gives us joy, like, why would we stop doing that, you know? Like, we taught ourselves through getting to the gay games and, you know, raising money and, you know, all that stuff to get there that, you know, we can do it. You know, we can set time apart every week to make this happen. So we know we can do it. And so, yeah, none of us um, are going to stop. We're going to keep going. And we're actually um, figuring out now, like, how do we engage um, other people in this? Because it's given us so much. Um and, you know, again, like, we're, we're so committed to, like, addressing some of the equity issues um, that exist in the state of Minnesota and in Minneapolis. There's so many waterways. And um, due to uh, racial discrimination um, against um, African-American, Native Americans specifically, and just people of color in general um, in terms of investment, in their neighborhoods um and um basically you know there are just there are a lot of people who um haven't had access to pools or swimming and so they can't swim they don't know how to um and so we're very committed to using whatever power we have to um to bring attention to that and to help address it by getting people in the pool with us and um Figuring out par- partnerships with some of the um, institutions, the parks, and and some of, like the YMCA and some other institutions that they have these, you know, facilities, and um, so we're just you know, um, so what was the second question? The second question was just you pretty much you, you did I, oh, okay. you answered it. I wanted to know like if you guys intend on doing it kind of like for years to come. Yes, and if you wanted to kind of spread you know spread the movement spread. Synchronized swimming to yes. you know other men and women of color. So. Yes, definitely. I mean, we we're we're so excited about it. We're yeah, we're figuring out how to let people swim with us, yep, um, so yep. that people can just try it because it's not really available at a lot of places. And you know, we went to the um, high school state championships or whatever, and most of the people were white, and most of them were from suburban schools. And um, you know, we think a lot of that has to do with. Um, economics and and what neighborhoods or communities have been invested in and schools right right for sure. um and so we're we're just hoping to get as many people excited about it and then you know and and also work with um organizations we're we're hoping to work with parks and power and other organizations who really also have a mission um of addressing inequities um through organizing um and accountability um so but yeah we're we would love to have um you know a man, men on our team we're we're specifically um you know wanting to have people of color and queer people because we know that um they're underrepresented yeah in in this sport and in a lot of sports and so um you know if you if you know people 
tell them about us. Um, like go to know. our Facebook. <laughs> yes, go to our Facebook page. Um, we're on Facebook and Instagram at um, the Subversive Sirens, and and check us out and and message us if you're interested in in being a part of it or swimming. We're we're just so excited about it. <laughs> so yeah. Well, I'd like to. Like I said, it's been long overdue. I'd yeah. like to, you know, thank you for just giving your time, joining in, Certainly. having this conversation, telling us everything about you, what you do, and your passions. And if people want to get in touch with you, yes. learn more about the timeline, mm-hmm. get access to the timeline, mm-hmm. have you guys come give a presentation, whatever that may be, mm-hmm. can you tell them how they could get in touch, touch with you? Sure. So my email is probably a, a really good way. It's my first name, Z-O-E dot my last name, H-O-L-L-O-M-O-N at gmail.com. And then um, the Subversive Sirens, like we have, like I said, social media. Just get in touch with us that way. And, um, yeah. Well, that's dope. Well, y'all heard it. Y'all heard it here. You heard it first. Miss Zoe Holloman, Olympic medal winner. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and food justice warrior. Um I appreciate you guys tuning in and listening to me um, and listening to my amazing guests today. Um, As always, if you have any questions, comments, critiques, hit me up at chilltimepod at gmail.com, and you know I'll address those as swiftly as possible. Um, But with that, I'd like to just say one more time, I appreciate you guys for listening in.
Trust me, it's only a test. That home, printer one, full mix.